Good morning. Welcome to your North Carolina Court of Appeals. Uh, my name is Chris Dill, and I'll be presiding today. And to my right is Judge Carpenter, and to my left is Judge Stadding. We have Richard Remillard serving as our marshal, and Eddie Sanders serving as our clerk today. Thank you all for being here. We have one case on the calendar. It's the State of North Carolina versus Mark Jones. And if the appellant is ready, you can proceed. And just let me know how much time you want to reserve. And I'll, I'll, we'll watch the clock, but um, I'll, I'll prompt you when you run out of time. You go ahead. Sorry. Good morning, and may it please the court. My name is Jane Allen with the Office of the Appellate Defender. It's my pleasure to appear before you today on behalf of Mark Jones. I would like to reserve 10 minutes for rebuttal. 10 minutes, okay. I intend this morning to begin by discussing the insufficiency of the evidence claim regarding the multiple conspiracy convictions, and then, time allowing, move on to a discussion of the insufficiency of the evidence of the 12A aggravating factor. To obtain three conspiracy convictions, the state was obligated to prove the existence of three agreements. That means proof that the defendants entered into three agreements and that each of those agreements were separate from the other. One agreement to rob, separate from one agreement to burglarize, separate from one agreement to kidnap. The state did not do so. There was simply no evidence whatsoever regarding any agreement made between the men. An agree a conspiracy can be inferred from the actions of the parties during the commission of the substantive offenses. Do you think there was and at least um, evidence from the, at least for the last, well, for the robbery and the breaking in and all that could be one maybe, and so we can delve into that one, but as to the third one where they were, um, one of the people came back and held them by gunpoint or whatever, could it be inferred that there was some kind of agreement when they rushed out of there or go back in there and, 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 and hold them till, till our ride comes up or whatever? Um, I, I do agree that the existence of one conspiracy could be inferred from the actions. Um, well, for, for the robbery and everything, but yeah. I don't, I mean, do you, I mean, is it reasonable to say that they, they, they sat there one day and said, let's go rob them, and then when we leave, you go back in there later. I mean, isn't it reasonable for the jury to infer that that, that last crime of kidnapping of them holding them by gunpoint at one person at the end, that agreement didn't take place until they were actually had finished going in there the first time. No, I disagree, Your Honor, and I disagree for several reasons. Okay. First of all, transcript page 261, Mr. Sturdivant's testimony himself is that while the men were in the house, one man was watching him, one man was watching Miss Carlock, and the heavyset gentleman was carrying out the robbery and quote loading her car up with the guns and stuff. So the evidence shows, first, the taking of Ms. Carelock's car was part of the original conspiracy from the get-go. Her car was going to be both a subject of a taking, container for storage of the items taken, and a means of escape. The agreement was to break into the home, steal as much as possible, and get away with it. Escape in whatever form was part of that agreement. No one conspires to commit a crime with no means of escape. Slashing the tires, telling the homeowners not to move, taking Ms. Carlock's car, those were all simply part of a single agreement. The state did not show a separate agreement to kidnap. The actions of the men established they had one agreement, break into the home, steal as much as possible, and get away with it. One of those objectives was to restrain the homeowners throughout. 
restraint of the homeowners occurred throughout the entirety of the conspiracy and restraints inherent in any burglary or armed robbery. The men lay in wait outside for Mr. Sturdivant, accosted him, got in the house, kept both homeowners restrained while robbing the homeowners and loading the goods into Ms. Carelock's car and told the homeowners not to move, slashed Mr. Sturdivant's tires, took Ms. Carelock's car so that their escape could be effective. I don't agree that that was a separate kidnapping. I believe that the evidence supports that that was inherent throughout the entire, cons throughout the commission of all the offenses and was inherent and a part of the original conspiracy. I have a question about the kidnapping now, because I know, I know if, 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 if I'm robbing you and I restrain you while I'm robbing you, you're saying that that can be inherent and so therefore that would be a double jeopardy issue or whatever, you can't be convicted of both. But if I've already completed that, can the escape be part of the robbery? Is that is that is the robbery over? And so then if I if I if I kidnap you to, to help me escape, is it can it then be a different crime or why why isn't it? Because they'd already taken everything. They were already had already left the house. So why wouldn't that just why wouldn't that be something separate? The robbery was over. Because the objective of the conspiracy was to break into homes, steal as much as possible, and do what was ever. I understand that on the conspiracy side. So you're not really arguing the kidnapping. Being, you're not no, as to the substantive um, kidnapping offenses, I'm not conceding that there was. Um, but you're not arguing that. Okay. That's correct. I have I, to stand I, on previous counsel's brief on that. That's fine. That's fine. In regards to the double jeopardy issue, um, do you agree that the the plain language of the statute as to armed robbery includes no element of restraint that the state must prove beyond a reasonable doubt. There are ample decisions from this court that res that restraint is inherent in a kidnapping. Thank you I for mean, that. That wasn't my question. Yes. The plain language of the yes. statute includes no restraint element that the state must prove. Is that correct? Correct. Do you also agree that under the Blockburger test from the United States Supreme Court that uh, these would be two separate and distinct crimes? Correct, Your Honor. Go back to conspiracy. I'm sorry. Um, the, the state tacitly concedes on page 17 of its brief um, that there was but one conspiracy. Um, in On page 17, it states, quote, as to the conspiracy to commit first-degree burglary, there is sufficient evidence in the record that the three men, including the defendant, planned to lay in wait and rob Mr. Sturdivant when he returned home that evening, end quote. That is a tacit concession that the agreement to commit burglary subsumed the agreement to commit robbery with a dangerous weapon. Um, the state's own argument in closing, transcript page 504, was that the men, quote, had some type of plan, end quote, before they got to the house. Plan is in the singular. Not multiple plans, not three plans, not more than one plan, but some type of plan. The state's evidence was insufficient to prove multiple separate agreements to support multiple conspiracies. I would like to turn now to the 12A aggravating factor. Imposition of an aggravated sentence based on the 12A aggravating factor requires proof beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant has previously been found by a court to be in willful violation of the terms of his probation. In Mr. Jones's case, the state relied solely on State's Exhibit 10 the revocation judgment, which is found on pages 94 and 95 of the record, 
to prove the aggravator. State's Exhibit 10 proves three things. Mr. Jones elected to serve his underlying sentence. The judge concluded he had violated a condition of probation and his probation was revoked. None of those things proves that the judge found him to be in willful violation of the terms of his probation. Is there a box you're supposed to check for, for any of that stuff? I don't, I don't yes, Your Honor. It's on the back side, page 95. You know what? You know where it is? Do you want? Well, that's fine. I just. I hate that our forms don't have, I mean, that I can't say it's, you know, section D on the back side. I hate that. Findings five. Yes. Court may revoke probation for the willful violation or absconded from supervision as set forth above. So, okay, so nothing was checked. Okay. Correct. Nothing was checked. I mean, I can hold this up, but, you know, I can barely see it right in front of me. I doubt y'all can. I think I'm looking under findings on the back page, number five. None of them. None of them. Nothing's findings. checked. None of them were checked. And as this court held in Posey to prove the 12A aggravating factor, North Carolina law requires proof beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant has previously. And this was the only evidence. There was no transcript from the. That's correct, Your Nothing. Honor. Okay. That's correct. Um, a finding of revocation of probation is insufficient to prove the 12A aggravating factor. A finding that the defendant violated a condition of his probation, insufficient to prove the 12A aggravating factor. Finding that the defendant elected to serve, insufficient. In every. Because probation can be revoked if it's willful, but can be revoked for other reasons too. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be willful. It willful violation of the terms of probation for committing a new offense, willful violation of the terms of probation for absconding, or two prior CRVs. Um, and yes, Your Honor, th this, this constitutes the extent of the state's evidence to prove the 12A aggravating factor. This court has considered the sufficiency of the evidence um, challenges to 12A aggravating factors in numerous cases, and in every case where this court has found the evidence to be sufficient, the state has introduced testimony or documents containing those four magic words. Um, in Hinton, the um, state introduced a probation violation report, and the probation violation report contained the four magic words. The state also introduced the revocation judgment in Mr. Hinton's case, showing that the defendant admitted he violated the conditions in his violation report, which was incorporated by reference. Um, in Shane Hill, the state introduced testimony of probation officers that the parole commission hearing officer found the defendant was in willful violation of the terms of his probation. Um, numerous cases, many other cases, and in every case where this court has found the evidence to be sufficient, there has been either testimony or documents containing those four magic words. In this case, the state relied on the Union County judgment here, which contains no findings, and the testimony of the Anson County clerk, who did not testify that the defendant had been found to be in willful violation of the terms of his probation. Um, because there was insufficient evidence that Mr. Jones was ever found to be in willful violation of the terms of his probation, the state failed to prove the existence of the 12A aggravating factor, and the trial court erred in imposing an aggravated sentence. The 
If there are no further questions, I will reserve the remainder of my time. I do have a question, and I, I, I need to go look this up. But um, to, I'm looking at the judgment of uh, the probation. It says uh, if you're for willful violation under 15A, 1343. Um, does the statute say that it has to be willful or just uh, or is that, yes, is that, is it does. Global? The statute does. It's, um, it is. Because an old Supreme Court case, that says it's either willful or without lawful excuse. And I don't know, I didn't know if the statute had both those phrases in there or not. No, it doesn't. Um, it is willful violation of the terms of the probation, um, uh, aggravating factor 12A. And that is what the statute says. Well, I know that's 12A says, but to, to be, uh, the statute that deals with somebody being Oh, 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 I misunderstood The probation the statute itself, the probation revocation statute itself. I don't, I don't know if it's that. I'm sorry, Your Honor, I can't. Because the form talks about 15A, 1343, if you're found to be willful, blah, blah, blah. And I know there's a Supreme Court case, and I, and I needed to go look that up. So. Um. 15A, 1433. 13, 1343, what, uh, just, what's? This, this, I'm just looking at the form. For willful violation of oh. conditions, he may not commit a criminal offense, 1343B1. 1343B1. You got seven minutes, but thank you for indulging me. 43B1. Then I should have looked this up. B1. 15A, 1343B1. That's special conditions. Okay. For the violation. That, that I'm looking at. Uh, let me look. But maybe there's a. The willful violation of conditions that he or she not committing criminal offense, GS. B1 just refers to special conditions. It didn't say that. Okay. No, it doesn't. Oh, wait. B1. Okay, there's a B1, B, section B, section 1 says regular condition. As a regular condition of probation, the defendant must commit no offense in any jurisdiction. Okay. Thanks. If there are no further questions, I'll reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Okay. Got 16 minutes. We'll hear from the state. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, Your Honors. Um, thank you, and may it please the court. My name is Adrian Dellinger. I am an assistant attorney general for the North Carolina Department of Justice. And I'm here on behalf of the state of North Carolina. <clears throat> Juries, our system of being judged by our brothers, sisters, neighbors, friends, and foes is what makes our system unique and robust. The first question presented to you today implicates this important part of our criminal justice system. Should several of the charges levied against the defendant have even been considered by the jury? Defendant's motion to dismiss asked the trial court to substitute its judgment for that of the jury, to find that there was no evidence to support the two kidnapping charges, and more importantly here today, the two of the three conspiracy charges. However, the trial court understood its role. 
It reviewed all of the admitted evidence in the light most favorable to the state and decided not to step in between the defendant and the jury of his, peer, of his peers. The trial court listened to the testimony of Ms. Mr. Sturdivant, who described being shoved through the door and beaten before being placed on the ground. The trial court listened to the testimony, testimony of Ms. Carlock, who described laying on top of her young child while the defendant and his co-conspirators held them both at gunpoint. And the trial court listed, listened as they both described the robbers coming back into the house after the robbery to force them back on the ground, continuing and again threatening their lives. The trial court listened to all of this testimony and after considering it in the light most favorable to the state, properly denied the defendant's request. The second question presented to you today is whether the state provided sufficient- Let me ask you about the first question. Sir, if I go into someone's house and I hold them by gunpoint and I steal a bunch of stuff, I get charged with robbery and with, and with kidnapping. Am I, am I right, the jury's instructed, if you find that Judge Dillon broke into the house and did all this stuff, you must find him guilty of robbery. If you find that he held some, felt restrained the, the people against their will, you gotta, whatever, you gotta find him guilty of kidnapping. Are they told that, but if you find that, that, that kidnapping was inherent as part of the robbery, you can only find, convict him of one, or are, they, or are they just asked each question separately, and we've gotta determine was there evidence whether it was, in, was, whether it was inherent or not. So did the, my question, did the jury ever pass on the question was the kidnapping inherent to the, to the robbery? Were they asked that question? Uh, from my review of the jury instructions, I, I don't believe that they so the we wouldn't be asked to separate. So we wouldn't be stepping into the issue. So the issue really before us is whether there was at least some evidence that there was a kidnapping separate from the robbery. That's the question, because the jury was never asked that. That's correct. And, okay. and certainly the question here really implicates this motion to dismiss. And most importantly, in considering a motion to dismiss, the, the standard is quite deferential to the state. It is looking at the evidence in the light most favorable, and most importantly, examining all of the evidence that was presented. Um, you know, the jury, when they, are, when they go back and they consider the evidence, they can take a look at some evidence and give it less weight than other evidence. But here, when you're looking at what the trial court did, uh, we should be making sure that the trial court didn't necessarily weigh evidence against each other, that it looked at every single piece of evidence that was admitted, and it takes each of those pieces in the light most favorable to the state. And so I think that's where it's, imp that, that's the important uh, sort of decision point with regards to uh, this question of, do you have just a robbery or do you have a robbery and also two counts of kidnapping? You take, have to take a look at all of the evidence, and I think there are some specific evidentiary points that separate those two things out. Importantly, you know, this court has has held. Actually, yeah, this court has held that a person may not be convicted of kidnapping and another felony if the restraint or removal is an inherent and inevitable element of that other felony, such as robbery with a dangerous weapon. However, an independent and separate restraint is sufficient. And there are several, let's see, in distinguishing these separate crimes, we look at a couple of different things. There's, there's, there are a couple lenses that we can look at this. Uh, one is, was the victim subjected to the kind of dangers and abuse the kidnapping statute was designed to prevent? Or, and I think this is probably the most relevant here, was the victim exposed to greater danger than that inherent in the armed robbery itself? 
So for the purposes of the fact pattern in this case, the armed robbery has three elements that we would look at. The defendant unlawfully takes or attempted to take the personal property of another while threatening to use a firearm. Those are the three important elements. Here you have a couple of, of, of facts that go outside and beyond those elements. The first is the robbers, when they came through the door, they immediately started assaulting Mr. Sturdivant who had, a, a, you know, ultimately at gunpoint assisted them in getting through the door. They assaulted him for no reason and then threw him to the ground. It's also important that it was not just Mr. Mr. Sturdivant and Ms. Carelock, but also Ms. Carelock's young son who was there, that the defendant at some point, uh, being one of the co-conspirators that was moving about with a gun, pointed his gun at not only Ms. Carelock, but also at her son. I mean, adding that extra danger to Ms. Carelock, that danger of, it's not just your life that's in danger, it's the, de it's the life of your child. And I think we all, you know, get a sense that that is an excess danger. That is something that we would feel very strongly about. We also, and I think this is, you know, when we look at um, timeframes and separating out these two crimes even more thoroughly, we can't ignore the actions that are taken by the conspirators after the robbery had already been completed. You know, looking through Mr. Carelock and Ms. Sturdivant's testimony, the robbers came in, one of them started finding all the good stuff, they took it outside, and then all three of the conspirators left. Ms. Carelock got up, she went back into the living room. She, I'm sorry, Ms. Sturdivant. No, Ms. Carelock got up, <laughs> sorry went back into the living room. There she and Mr. Sturdivant began talking. And it's at that point, uh, uh, one of the conspirators came back into the, into the house, held them at gunpoint, forced them back down onto the ground. This is, at that time, at the time that that co-conspirator came back into the house, the robbery, the armed robbery, was already complete. Is that, based on what you've just told us, is that your belief in regards to the theory for only two kidnapping charges and not three in, in regards there there's no kidnapping charge in regards to the young child that's correct there is no kidnapping and the indictment uh, the, the two indictments there are two indictments for kidnapping they are for mr. Uh, mr. Sturdivant Airlock and mr. Sturdivant I'm sorry I'm gonna have I'm gonna do my best to try to keep their names the minor child was not uh, listed on the indictment uh, I think that's important, though, because that is a person's minor child, and you know, pointing a gun at my child is just as much kidnapping me as it is them. My question, uh, my question to you is: Is that the state's belief in regards to the theory on only having two kidnapping charges and not three, as it relates to Mr. Sturdivant, Miss Carlock, and the young child? The second entry into the house where they were forced back on the ground is that the theory of the state? So, and, and I want to make sure I answer your question, I understand it. I don't think there were two kidnapping charges because there were two time points where people were held at, gun, at gunpoint. I think the two, the two kidnapping charges were for the two individual victims. What and, about the child? Uh, I do not know why the district attorney uh, did not seek were, to indict them for a third. For a third. In theory, right? Right. Um, you know, if, if I were in their shoes, well, I, I, I mainly do Medicaid work. I don't know if anybody wants me in their <laughs> shoes. Um, but no, if, if I were in the shoes, maybe that, that would be, you know, having three people. Um, but no, I, you know, I think a good 
you know, a good theory at this point, based on the facts that were presented, is that there's a hard time, there's a sort of hard time break. You have everything that happened while the three were in there, holding people at gunpoint, robbing the place, and then they leave. But then one of them comes back. The, the, but they did it to facilitate the escape, and I guess, you know, I gotta figure out where to draw a line, because if I come up to you and hold a gun to you, mm -hmm. give me your wallet, I think it's just a robbery, because that's part of the restraint there is to facilitate the robbery. Once you hand me the, rock, the wallet, I don't drop my gun and run. I'm gonna back away and keep my gun on you. I've already completed it, but this is to help me to escape. And I don't think, at least in that scenario, that would be a separate kidnapping, because that's facilitating the crime of robbery to let me escape. And so, but you're saying because there was this break in time and they left the place and came back in, but it was, it was I, I think the defendant's counsel saying that um, it was to facilitate this, it was still to facilitate that robbery and all that, so was there a break? But you're saying there was a, and, and I don't, I'm just trying to figure out where the case law says we draw that line. Sure. But I think in my scenario, it would just still be one crime because I'm just backing away, and then I walk out of the room and I'm out because I don't want you to move while I'm backing out. I've already robbed you, but, but you're saying because they left the room and came back, that would be a different crime, even though it was to facilitate the escape, perhaps, or? I think that's, that's certainly uh, a, a the theory, factor. probably the strongest theory for uh, having not only robbery, but the, the separate kidnapping charges. Um, you know, the case law, State v. Warren, this court stated that, that you can kind of look at two, uh, two things. One, was the victim subjected to the kind of danger and abuse the kidnapping statute was designed to prevent? And, I, and then two, was the victim exposed to greater danger than that inherent in the armed robbery itself? And um, so I think this is, this is certainly a very fact-intensive question. You know, we're, we're sort of trying to find on a, on a scale, on a, on a spectrum. Is there evidence uh, how old the child was? How old was the, was the child? How old was the child? I do not know. I, I looked through the record this morning. I, I believe he was young. I'm, uh, you know, I believe five or six, but I could be wrong. Um, it's just mentioned as her son multiple times through the transcript. Um, there was no need to point a gun at a little child to, to, to facilitate the robbery because the child wasn't going to do anything. But you're saying that was extra danger. Uh, correct. You know, the fact that you have a child the there with his mom and the mom is sitting there sort of on top of the child, you know, trying to shield the child with her own body. Okay. I think that adds to, you know, the victim her, being exposed. At least for her kidnapping. I got you. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. I, I, you know, this is a fact-intensive, we're, we're always looking at sort of shades of gray. I think in this, you know, this, in this case, you have this nice, clean break where they had, they had taken everything back. You know, to, to look at your hypothetical, imagine that, you know, you rob me on the street and you point your gun as you sort of run away. You turn the corner, I go, wow, okay, thank goodness, I'm done with that, I'm, I'm, I'm alive. And then all of a sudden, you come right back around the corner and say, hey, put your, put your phone down, get back on the ground, because maybe, that's what they did. Maybe my car didn't start, I come back in, I need to use, I want exactly. whatever, sit back right. in. I, I, so you're saying that would be a break and that would. And that's what happened specifically here. They, you know, I, my recollection from the transcript is, is that Miss um, Carlock was, and Mr. Sturdivant were trying to find their phones, make sure that they were, you know, trying to get to dial 911, to call police, and it's at that time the, the co-conspirator came back in and again, you know, told them not to do that, put them back on the ground at gunpoint. And so this is, 
this is, this is certainly the kind of danger and abuse that the kidnapping statute is designed to prevent. I mean, we definitely don't want to have people constantly being, you know, forced to the ground at gunpoint. The car they took belonged to one of the victims, is that right? That is correct. Were yes. they charged with stealing the car? Uh, they were, but that charge was ultimately dismissed. So that was not part of that. So, so, I mean, it might be inherent in stealing the car is, is holding the gun while you get the car going, but you're saying they weren't charged with that. Was not the, that, that was, okay. Correct. Okay. I, I, I believe the jury issued a judgment on that charge, but was ultimately dismissed at sentencing. Okay. But yes. Um, and, and I think, you know, to uh, counsel's point, you know, to talk a little bit more about Going back to this page 261 of the transcript, um, you know, counsel sort of, opposing counsel, you know, sort of tried to tie those two things together, the robbery while they were, all three were in there versus the, the sort of getting away and the robbery when the person came back into the house. And, and you know, the testimony though of Mr. Sturdivant is, you know, the big dude was kind of like ramshackling the house he was looking through my room. He was loading up her car with the guns and stuff. And I think the reference is certainly to, you know, his, his girlfriend, Miss Carelock. They obviously probably had got dropped off. I'm not sure. And then going on to page 262, you know, he was asked, okay, and when do you say you know they know how they left? How do you know why they left? And his answer was because they asked for our keys and when I got up to lock the door after they left, they drove off in her car. I, I don't think that this sort of stands for the proposition that opposing counsel is, is, is saying that there was some grand conspiracy or that this was all part of just one large, um, you know, one large conspiracy in action and robbery. You think there were three? Why were there three conspiracies? So we do, yes, uh, the, the state's position and, you know, I, and I think it's clear um, if, you know, there are three separate conspiracies. Um, there were three charged conspiracies and that there were three separate conspiracies. One was for the burglary and one was for armed robbery, is that right? Correct, you had first degree burglary, you had robbery with a dangerous weapon, and then you had second degree kidnapping. Okay, explain to me why there was two conspiracies on the first two. I mean, it, was, it would just seem to me the evidence would say, let's go break in this house and steal a bunch of stuff. Why, why, why was it like, Let's go over there and, and break in. Oh, we're in here. Let's go steal a bunch of stuff. I mean, why is there, I'm trying to understand why there's two conspiracies on those two. I might get the, the, the third one, because, okay, oh my gosh, the car didn't work. Let's go back in there and hold them, maybe. But, and I'm, I'm not saying I'm there yet, but explain to me really the first two. Sure. So the first degree burglary conspiracy, and I think this is what opposing counsel was referencing in my brief is, I think that's the most straightforward. It's clear that, you know, the plan from these three co-conspirators was to, you know, um, <clears throat> sort of jump Mr. Uh, Sturdivant as he got home, hold him at gunpoint, have him open the door, and then go in and rob. Um, however, there's no evidence presented showing that conspiracy. Okay, that's one conspiracy, and you've described both the first two crimes. To go in there, break in the house, and rob. So I, I don't understand how that's two conspiracies. So there is a conspiracy for the robbery with the dangerous weapon. There is this second robbery that happens after they come back in. They needed to rob, you know, they needed to then steal the car, which is, which was a separately charged larceny. Um, there was a separate jury instruction as it relates to the car itself. 
And so you have a separate conspiracy there. After they had left, there's a separate conspiracy to come back in, hold them at gunpoint. Even though they weren't convicted of the underlying crime, they could have a conspiracy to do it. You could be, they weren't convicted. Well, they didn't, well, it got set aside. Right. And, and you may have the issue of, you know, having multiple crimes based on the same sort of acts and action, this sort of double jeopardy issue. So one case, you know, I, I don't think that one of these charges being dismissed necessarily negates the, the, the idea that there was a conspiracy to commit it. Uh, that, you know, it, it sort of frees up the ability to charge them under a conspiracy instead of the, the larceny. So the conspiracy was the armed robbery steal the car. Mm-hmm. And then within that, you know, the second time they come in, they, they well, hold. It creates an interesting question because then I think stealing the car and holding back when they came back in, that, that kidnapping would be inherent in stealing the car, perhaps, which might give you a double jeopardy issue. But they weren't, but the judge set that judgment aside. They just, they were just, the only judgment that stood was the, the fact that they agreed to steal the car. So whether it was actually carried out, I mean, I guess you can have a conspiracy and never carry out the crime. Is that possible? Is that, is that correct? Conspiracy is everyone once you make the agreement. That's correct. In, in North Carolina, the agreement is what's necessary. Okay, okay. Um, yes, the, the agreement is what's necessary. Also, uh, you know, can, uh, opposing counsel in one of her memorandums of additional authority pointed to a case, State v. Tirado, uh, which is a uh, North Carolina Supreme Court case. And, and that case does say that the question of whether multiple agreements constitute a single conspiracy or multiple conspiracies is a question of fact for the jury. And so, again, as long as there's some evidence to support it, as there's got to be some evidence. I mean, that that's is, the issue that's here is whether or not that should have been dismissed at the close of the state's evidence. That's correct. But uh, again, I think we're talking about looking at this evidence in the broadest. Um, in the broadest way possible and the light most favorable to the state. Um, you know, was there, a, a, and we may not be able to specifically identify each conspiracy. Um, well, now you got an interesting question because the conspiracy was to steal the car and to hold them by, by gunpoint so you could steal the car. So if, if the holding by gunpoint steal the car, the actual crimes of kidnapping and stealing the car might merge in one because it's inherent. So can you, can you have two separate conspiracies when the kidnapping that you're conspiring to do is inherent with the robbery that you're conspiring to do? Can you have, you can't have two, assuming that holding them by gunpoint was inherent in stealing the car and you can't be convicted of both, can you be convicted of conspiracies to do both those things? Right. Now I'm having an issue with that. I don't know, I mean, because. This, this is a difficult sort of uh, weave to untangle I agree with you that um, you know the, the agreement is is typically what matters, and if the if there's one agreement to commit multiple crimes, you t you, you do not have multiple conspiracy charges. Um, yeah, let's go steal that car, and you hold them by gunpoint while we do it. Have you conspired to commit two crimes, or have you conspired to commit one crime? Because the kidnapping is, is sort of part of the the other crime that you're conspiring. Is that a, is that a single conspiracy or? Can that be grounds for two of them? 
I think it could be grounds for two of them, but there are what also other, <laughs> there are other hypotheticals we can run. One is uh, that there's nothing to indicate that these, um, that the conspirators expected Miss Carolock or especially her son to be there. And so they had to then on the fly deal with those two those two people, and so there's a, you know, they had to, at the time, make a new conspiracy to kidnap those two, especially the son. They didn't know they were still there? Uh, th I'm thinking back to the original sort of breaking and entering and robbery, that, you know, they, they, the plan, the original conspiracy would have been to go into okay. the house, rob, but they didn't necessarily know that uh, the wife would, or the, the girlfriend was there, and certainly uh, may not have expected that sh her child would be there, and so, there was this sort of subsequent uh, implied agreement then to hold them at gunpoint, which would support, it arguably support a second conspiracy. What evidence was there that, that the probation violation was willful? What evidence to the jury was it that, was, that it was willful? And, and it's more than just a, a hunch or suspicion. The, the evidence, I, you know, opposing counsel is correct. The evidence that was presented with regards to the 12A charge was um, was the the form was the form and that's it. What on that form says that he was found to have willfully violated his probation? What evidence is there from which the jury could infer without just guessing? Because you can be your probation can be revoked for a lot of different reasons, and willfulness isn't always necessarily the case, I guess. Without looking outside the record, what right. in the record tells tells me that he that yeah, he, I, was, he was I mean, it is scant. It's it's difficult to pull from here, but the the fact that it was revoked is not enough because you can have the probation revoked for these other reasons. It looks like so. It's, there's got to be some, and I'm not saying it wasn't because it was willful, but there's got to be evidence before the jury that they that from which they could make that determination. I would assume. The, there's enough from the order to infer that there was a willful violation. The conclusion in order on page 94 of the How record, do I know he was, because he, the defendant was twice previously been confined in response to violation and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, because because that's another have, reason why you could have it done and there's nothing willful about that. I'm just, but, we don't know. Uh, I, the, if he was confined twice prior, he could only be confined because of a willful violation as probation. And so you would have the willful violation for those two times being confined. And so any way you hack it, and no matter how far you go down, there is a willful violation of the probation. People are, uh, you know, defendants are not placed on, you know, their, their probations are not revoked for uh, conduct that is outside of their control. Okay. Uh, and so, yes, while the record is very scant, all we have is this judgment and commitment um, that's on page 94 and 95. If the, if the probation revocation statute includes, says that the, in order to be uh, vile to be revoked, the violation has to be willful. Obviously, the form doesn't have that box checked. Is that a collateral attack on a previous judgment? Yes. I think 
I think one thing that you would have to find here is that the underlying revocation of his probation was improper. And I know that uh, the defendant has uh, submitted some, again, some, some additional authority, memorandum of additional authority that discusses, um, you know, the, <clears throat> that defendants can no longer elect to serve their sentences instead of, uh, you know, being placed on probation. And they, However, couldn't, they couldn't elect to serve it in 2015 either. That's correct. And they can't. They, they, at the time, they could not. And while this does say it elects to serve, I think a reasonable inference is instead of them, the defendant electing to serve, the defendant just didn't challenge the violation of their probation. And that's the basis on which this order was issued. And because he didn't challenge the, this order at the time, we can't now go back and look at this order and, and, and see whether it was sort of uh, facially invalid. On its face, it finds that the court concludes that the defendant has violated a valid condition of probation and that we are, you know, uh, that we're revoking it based on that violation. And that it's, you know, uh, based on the order itself, it's, a, and the fact that you can't have, uh, really can't have a violation of probation so that's not will. Because this is kind of collaterally going back to the original judgment, he, the, uh, Mr. Jones was convicted of resisting a public officer, a class two misdemeanor. Uh, he could not have received a active sentence for that absent some sort of substantial record. He was sentenced to 10 days. I believe that's true, but again, most of my work is in Medicaid. But yes, I, 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 I believe you are correct. Okay. I mean, I know I, I have to go read the statute because there's, there's a Supreme Court, State v. Hewitt, which is 270 NC 348, where the Supreme Court says that you can have a your probation revoked if it's willful or without lawful excuse. And there's some case that the school government cited that talked about where somebody was on drugs where they might not willfully did what they did, but they put themselves in that situation without lawful excuse. So I, I think this is, you've got to figure out, is it possible for your probation to be revoked without it being willful? Is there, I mean, I, and I, maybe the statute has been amended or changed since that, that Hewitt case, but we have to figure it out. But because I don't see anything in this here, unless it's just per se, it has to be willful. Yeah, I, <clears throat> based on the briefing, that is, uh, I don't know if I'm able no, no, to no, answer I, I, that question fine, as fine. well as I probably should. Um, no, no, I understand. That's, but yeah, I, I, I should do. But I mean, I was in banking, so I'm like you. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so uh, I don't know. There was, um, uh, unless anybody has any. Uh, any of your honors have any questions specific to the 12A or the conspiracy or the robbery or kidnapping charges? Um, I, you know, there was a supplemental brief that, or, or motion for a supplemental brief that was uh, submitted. Um, <clears throat> I have a, a few sort of arguments related to that if the court would like to hear them. You've got two minutes. Okay. Then I will, I will go quickly. Um, the Supplemental brief added a couple of additional questions um, and arguments. First, the defendant argues that the jury instructions regarding existence of evidence beyond a reasonable doubt of both aggravating factors only apply to the four non-conspiracy charges. Uh, this, there's predicate language in the instruction that only lists those four non-conspiracy charges, uh, but what really matters is the actual instruction 
from the judge, which is, do you find from the evidence beyond a reasonable doubt the existence of the following aggravating factors? Just because a predicate, you know, just because the first phrase of that sentence only lists four of the charges, don't, that's not dispositive of this issue. Um, and importantly, you know, the, the 12A issue is, is irrelevant of the charges, the prior charges, those, or the charges that are being charged at this time. You know, it's, it has nothing to do with whether, you know, it's, he violated his probation and he's now being charged with conspiracy or actual robbery. It doesn't matter. He, just the question is whether he was. Um, the defendant further argues that the state produced no evidence to prove that the defendant was armed or used a deadly weapon at the time of the commission of the conspiracy. The defendant is conflating the making of that conspiracy and the law that, yes, the conspiracy, that, that the crime of the conspiracy is, is done once an agreement is made with the idea, though, that criminal conspiracy continues on through the objectives of the conspiracy. Again, State v. Toronto you know, states that the conspiracy ends not when all parties are in agreement, but when the goals of the conspiracy are attained. And I think there was plenty of evidence here that uh, the guns were used during the commission of the crimes. Thank you for your argument. So thank you, thank you all very much. Unless you have any other questions, I'll be seated. Rebuttal, and I think you have, six, you have 16 minutes. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, to, in, in response to Judge Carpenter's question, um, Mr. Jones is not engaged in a collateral attack on the revocation of his judgment, um, the revocation of his probation. He's not challenging the revocation. That's right. That, he didn't appeal from that. Correct. <clears throat> so he wants to, to take advantage of the benefit of the box not being checked here. Um, but he was convicted of a class two misdemeanor. He couldn't have received an active sentence for that. And I'm curious as to your position in regards to the uh, application of the revocation statute to a class two men. Can one be revoked for the violation of probation as to a class two misdemeanor if it's not willful? Um, your Honor, I agree that that may be what North Carolina law and statutes say, but that's not what occurred in this case. He was revoked without a finding of willfulness. That is what the state's own evidence established. But does that not create a legal impossibility? Can, can one be revoked without willfulness? Your Honor, it, whether it should or shouldn't have happened, it did happen. That's what occurred, and that's what the state's own evidence in this case establishes. And, and my question goes back to why is that not a collateral attack? Because he is not, he is not attacking, challenging the revocation of the probation. If he was, that would be a concern. But he is challenging the use of this revocation of probation for the 12A aggravating factor. And incidentally, I mean, his election to serve. He, 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 has, he lacks the legal right to elect to serve under our law. I agree with that, Your Honor. But that's exactly what occurred in this case. I, I agree with that. I'm the one that filed the memorandum. But how is the judgment not illegal? Because. It, the probationary judgment, how is that not an illegal judgment? How is this not a collateral attack? Because he is, because, okay. I'm the one that filed the memorandum of additional authority containing the 1995 session law repealing the election to serve. I, I understand what you're saying, Your Honor. I understand that it was not a statutorily authorized sentence at the time that it was imposed in 2015, 
it's not my position that it was, but that is what occurred. And as the School of Government ar article by Jamie Markham explains, even though elections to serve were abolished in 1995, they still continue in some number. And again, the election to serve is what occurred in this case. That is what the certified judgment upon which the state chose to rest its case establishes. That revocation judgment is final. Mr. Jones is not appealing from it. It is a final judgment. So it's final. possible the judge could have, I mean, been outside the authority, could have said, I'm not finding it's willful, but, but since the defendant's saying that they'll serve, I'm going to let them serve. And if the defendant doesn't appeal it, he's stuck with it. Yes, the problem yes, is, Your Honor. But you're just saying it just can't be used. It's, it's not a showing that it was willful. It might yes. have been illegal. Cause That's right. Judges make, judges make improper rulings all the time that aren't appealed and they're stuck with it. But, but, that doesn't, but, if, but if it's not found, the state's got to prove that the judge didn't make that mistake beyond a reasonable doubt, I guess. That's correct. And incidentally, his election to serve is not fatal for the use of this as an aggravating factor. The error is the district court's failure to make findings that he was in willful violation of the terms of his probation. Well, isn't that kind of baked into the cake? I'm pretty sure that the statute says you can only be revoked for a willful violation of your probation. Um, isn't that kind of baked into the cake if the statute says that? Whether the judgment has the box checked or not, if the statute requires that as a minimum to get to the point of revocation and we have a revocation, um, there's no attack on the judgment, as you say. Correct. So isn't that kind of already baked into the cake? I, I disagree with that premise, Your Honor. I disagree with that premise because State's Exhibit 10, which the state chose to rely upon, shows to the contrary, that there was no willful, there was no finding of willful violation of the terms of his probation. None of the findings are marked on the back. This court's decision in Posey refutes that. This court's decision in Posey says a 12A aggravating factor cannot be imposed in the absence of proof beyond a reasonable doubt of willful violation of the terms of probation. Proof of revocation of probation is insufficient. That's what this court held in Posey. Proof of an election to serve proof of violation of a condition of probation, insufficient. Additionally, the plain language of the statute refutes that. 15A 1340.16 states that the 12A aggravating factor only applies when the defendant has previously been found to be in willful violation of the terms of his probation. That statute means what it says and says what it means in the clearest and most direct terms possible. If our General Assembly wanted what it, the well, 12 let's, well, let's, let's jump off there. If the statute says what it says and means what it says, what about the statute saying you can't elect to serve probation anymore? That one, that one doesn't mean what it says, I guess. Well, I think it does mean what it says. I just think this judge ignored it and other judges tend to, and apparently according to Jamie Markham, other judges continue, continue to find otherwise. Just because judges commit legal errors, that's why we have jobs. That's why we're here, because errors occur. So you're saying the judge possibly exceeded his authority, his or her authority, and revoked the probation here. Because without, you have to make a fine and willfulness, right? That's correct. Well, the fact that he, well, I'll go, let me ask you this. The fact that the judge did revoke the probation, is that some evidence that the judge, I mean, it's not, it's some evidence from which the jury could infer that the judge made a finding of willfulness? I disagree, Your Honor, and I do not, you, that you cannot. It's a jury question, I guess, but there's got to be some evidence. 
Is it enough that the evidence says that the probation was revoked? I do not believe proof beyond a reasonable doubt can be based on an inference. When there is, you cannot rely on this order, um, so the, the revocation judgment, based on findings that weren't made in the order to then backfill in the findings. Proof That's a house built doubt, on sand. Based on inferences, I think the jury can, if it's a reasonable inference, I think you can do it. Is it a reasonable inference from this judgment that the judge found that this person was willful? No, You're because the no entire thing. finding section is, uncom is completely blank, and that is the only section that contains the willful violation language. Okay. The finding section includes that the defendant has been charged with violating his probation. That's unchecked. Are you talking about section one? I mean, you're doing the-, the I'm under the findings of the, of the probationary judgment. Yeah. One is that he was charged with a violation of his probation. Two, that's unchecked. Two is right. that he received notice, that's right. unchecked. Three is- three, three, they want in three you to list the paragraph numbers right. of the violation report. That's blank. It's just a blank. Yes. It's just a blank judgment. Yeah. But the judgment does say defendant elects to serve. Yes, it's correct, and and it says that. And I I agree with that. And as I said, and as you know, I submitted memorandum of additional authority, I'm not saying that that was a statutorily authorized option at the time. I'm saying that that's what this judgment reflects occurred. So, was the law prior to 1995 was there was no requirement of willfulness of the defendant elected to serve? Correct. A defendant could just correct. A defendant could just elect to serve for whatever reasons. Maybe he or she just didn't want to. Excuse me, maybe well, here's your problem. I mean, that's the, the, well, the judge did make that finding. The defendant elects to serve, and that was, seems like to be the basis, which might have been illegal. Okay. Okay, I see your point now. Um, and as it concerns um, the separate conspiracies, a conspiracy begins when the agreement is formed, and it lasts until it achieves its objectives, is thwarted, or is abandoned. The objective of this conspiracy was to break into the home, steal as much as possible, and do what was necessary to get away with it. Decisions on how to carry out the objectives of the conspiracy, made while the conspiracy is ongoing, do not constitute new conspiracies. And we know that from this court's decision in Medlin. In Medlin, the defendants conspired to break into stores in downtown Durham um, over a period of um, I believe four months, they broke and entered a dozen stores, broke into the stores, robbed them, met afterwards to divide up the proceeds, discuss what store they were going to select next. And I mean, at one point, they were robbing one store, looked out the window across the street and said, hey, there's another store over there. Let's rob that one. This court had no difficulty saying that those robberies were the product of a single agreement. And it is the same outcome here. The offenses were part of a single agreement. And as long as that one agreement was ongoing, decisions made on how to carry out that agreement are part and parcel of the agreement. There are no further questions. Thank you for your arguments. And we will